Wallace has written more than 20 books, including the New York Times bestseller To Marry an English Lord, which was an inspiration for the Downton Abbey TV series. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in today's show, Carol talks about her latest historical fiction, Our Kind of People. Set in Gilded Age New York, this week another joint author promotion of Whodunits, Whodunit Mysteries on the Joys of Binge Reading free giveaway. Links for these books and all the details for other subjects discussed in this episode can be found on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Join our weekly newsletter so you've got a prompt every week on what's newly posted and what's coming next. But now, here's Carol. Hello there, Carol, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Jenny, it is such a pleasure to be speaking to you from New York City. It's almost amazing to think that we can even get to each other across our computers. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I must admit, we I know we both know, but I'd like to just mention that I found you through a New York podcast called The Gilded Gentleman, in which you spoke very entertainingly about your deep understanding of New York history. And we're going to be talking about your latest book today, which is Our Kind of People, which is a historical fiction related to the girl age and the transition of the generations from the old money and the rather staid old New York to the new money. So tell us a bit about our kind of people. First of all, I, I have to say that you recapitulated the subject very, very gracefully there. So our kind of people is set in New York in the 1870s, which is when industrial money starts to flow into the city in a big way. And when the families that have been in social charge of New York, like the Astors, for example, big name here in New York City, whose money had mostly come from banking or real estate, um, they have to face up to being displaced socially by families who made their money in different industries, for example, or uh, different ways of making much, much bigger fortunes. So it's a clash between a more um, genteel past and a more rough and tumble present, which recapitulates itself certainly in New York over and over again. And I'm willing to bet it happens in New Zealand as well. No? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we've had periods, the 1980s here in particular, where there was a new rise, rise of, you know, on a much smaller scale, of course, but our own little petty barons that took over the city in a way. Yes, yeah, exactly. So the Wilcox family's got two daughters, Jemima and Alice, and they're both reaching that very important age when they're going to be debutantes and seeking out a husband that's suitable, matches their own social status and purpose. And just at that point, the family suffers a bit of a setback, which makes them a little bit less desirable socially. And it sets up a wonderful 
confrontation about the way that these two parts of society were interrelating and weaving together. So tell us a bit about that. It's very much a US setting for a, a similar thing to Downton Abbey in a way. Well, it is, although I did my best, of course, to, to steer somewhat clear. Basically, the social story in the US as in the UK at, at the turn of the century is about old money and new money. And that's what we see in our kind of people I wanted to, you, in order to create a plot, you have to put your characters under pressure, right? Yes. And I knew I wanted to write about the social conflicts between old and new money as New York began to change. And it seemed like a good idea to be writing about young women. I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to write an office story. Offices are not interesting. On the other hand, clothes to me are very interesting and parties, and flirtations, and matchmaking. And so that's why I set this cast of characters up the way I did. And it was helpful to have two girls of very different characters going through the process of being presented to society, which was still a big deal in New York in those days. As it was, in fact, when I was growing up in suburban Connecticut, in the 1970s. So it was a, a social pattern I was familiar with, but back in the 1870s, it had real significance. Whereas in the 1970s, when I was growing up, it was just a ghost of a, of a process. Yes, yes. Look, you have a wonderful, just light satirical touch with this. You call your book social comedy, and it's very appropriate because you have such an intimate understanding of the funny little things that might make you um, frowned upon, like the wrong colour braid on a dress or some very, very significant little details that are mentioned there. And one of them was this odious task they had every day of writing down and writing handwritten thank you notes for invitations they'd received. Tell us a bit about your own time, a hundred years later, and those sorts of conventions. They were still lingering on. They were absolutely lingering on, Jenny. I had to write thank you notes and, oh my gosh, my poor mother. I'm the middle of three girls. And the, what she went through to get us to write those notes, there was a theory on that on Christmas, by the time we went to bed, we ought to have written the thank you notes to all of our grandparents and our godparents who had sent us gifts. But of course, I was the compliant one, but my other sisters were rebels and she could never actually make that stick. And that was just one of the ways. There were all these strictures, again, 18, uh, 1970. 1970s about clothes, how long your dress was, if you were going to dance in school, if you were going to dance in school and you were going to put your hand on a boy's shoulder, would your dress ride up so much that the tops of your stockings would be exhibited? I mean, the the just the tiny little details like that just there was no end to it. Yeah, yeah. Also playing a big part in the story because the girl's father is a person who's risen through the ranks from a fairly low beginning. And he has this very ambitious business scheme related to the elevated railway or the L, which was a real thing that got built 
from the bottom of town up through to Harlem during this period. Now, tell us a bit about the L and people outside of New Zealand, although 60% of our audience is in the States, quite a few people outside of the US and even some younger ones within the US may not really have ever heard of the L, but it was a huge thing from the late 60s on, wasn't it? It was. And part of the issue was that the streets were so congested in ways that I think we would be very, very hard put to imagine. Bear in mind that, first of all, no cars, right? So it's all wagons. So there are horses. If there are horses, there is manure. And right away, the streets are physically a mess. So it's very difficult for a woman, certainly, to drag her skirt across the street, let alone what she might be walking in. Furthermore, the idea of traffic control that we have, that you stay in your lane, no, 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 there was none of that. So (laughs) the elevated railway presented a way for the ordinary working people, not the people sitting in private carriages, to get from one end of town to another. And I had been trying to figure out, as I wrote this book, I I wanted the father of my girl characters to suddenly make quite a bit of money. And it's honestly, when I figured out that the L fit into my time frame, I practically danced a jig because that he needed a big capital project and he needed to get rich off it very quickly. And that was, so that was what I chose was the elevator railway. And then I had the amazing good luck of finding some history majors, PhD thesis online all about the elevator railway. And I read it with enormous care and it was extremely helpful so that some of the really circumstantial details came from that. And also there are places in New York where our metro or subway or whatever you call interrail mass transit, intercity mass transit, still does go above the highways. And there's a place at 125th Street, where you have to walk way down several flights of stairs to to where you actually want to be. And that that's left over from the L. So it was a railway that was actually just up there on pylons above head level. Yep, up there on pylons running along 9th Avenue to begin with and also on the east side eventually. Yep. And it, it changed the city because people could get to their work much more easily. You know, in the back of your book, you've got some questions for book club readers. And I looked through those questions. And and one of them was, what were your favorite scenes in the book? And one of my favorite scenes was when Joseph's wife finally gets on the L and travels on it. And it's like a revelation. I mean, this has been quite a big point of conflict in the marriage because he sinks a lot of money into it. And at one point, he looks like he might lose the lot. And when it all comes right, although I hope I'm not spoiling the story too much here, she gets on the L and suddenly she has this understanding about its importance to the city and why it was such a great thing. And suddenly she is so proud of her husband and what he's achieved. But that's a lovely scene. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to hear you say that. It was a late entry I just sort of wrote it out of the blue. The scene wrote itself and several people have told me exactly what you did, that it was a real pleasure to read and that it somehow, it was exhilarating. And I'm really glad I was able to make it exhilarating because, you know, one of the best things about what I do for a living is that I get to live as my characters. Yes. And 
when it when it works really well, I am Helen Wilcox on that train with my fingers on the keyboard, and I'm not even aware of where else I am. I'm just rattling down the street to the southern point of Manhattan, and it's like time travel. It's great. And that does come through. The other thing that's lovely about the book, really, is that Helen and her two daughters, they have a different view of life. It's just like any family. The same would happen today. But that comes very nicely through the generational exchange that's going on there between the daughters who do the thing that all adolescents do. They do things behind their mother's back secretly that she doesn't know anything about and would be absolutely shocked if she knew about them. So that that dimension also at the domestic level, this little thing that's playing out on the on the macro level is shown in that family. Well, I think that is true that there's, and this is always the case. I think that in a family, there are going, your siblings act against each other, right? They, they rub against each other. And perhaps if there's a goody goody, then the next child will be more rebellious or vice versa. Yeah. And you, you do see that playing out with these two girls that, that one of them is far more conventional than the other. One of them is a risk taker and they act accordingly throughout the book. Yeah, that's right. You have written 20 other books, which obviously we don't have a chance to go into all of those and quite a wide range from nonfiction to humor to parenting books. But one of them that made you very famous was called To Marry an English Lord. And it's been credited by Julian Fellows as being one of the inspirations for his Downton Abbey series originally. Now, um, I, I wondered what was the inspiration for this book and whether you kind of did almost have a feeling you wanted to translate some of the research that you'd become so aware of with Tamaria, an English Lord, into the New York environment. Tell us a bit about Tamaria, an English Lord, for starters. So for starters, Tamaria, an English Lord, I wrote with a friend of mine whom I had gotten to know years earlier at my very first job, and it was her idea. She came to me one day and said, it wouldn't it be fun if we could write about this historical phenomenon? And we sort of battled it around for a while and nothing much happened. And then eventually we were both free at the same time. And so she went off to England to do the British side of the research. And as it happened, met a man who would later become her husband. So Every step of the way of writing this book was somehow, you know, hurry up and wait and start and stop. But ultimately, we did, and it's still a mystery somewhat to me, about how we managed to do it together. Because the writing style seems quite clear to me, quite smooth. Gail did, as I said, a lot of the English research. There's a lot of visual pieces that she was primarily in charge of. And the more research we did, the more we realized that it was a really entertaining phenomenon that actually shed light on both sides of the Atlantic on the history at that time, because there was the bit about the American money, and there was also the bit about how the British economy, particularly, particularly in the upper classes, among families who were sort of above working socially, we're suddenly running out of money. And so what you would get is well-born Englishmen coming to New York to take their pick of the lovely, young, wealthy heiresses. And it made for a great story and a great book. 
Yeah, Consuela Vanderbilt obviously was one of the most notorious of those matches at this time. So mention a bit about her. Well, Consuelo is notorious because she is one of the one of the wealthiest of the girls whose fate we're talking about, but also because Consuelo had the last word. She ended up writing, okay, well, let me backtrack. Her mother was very ambitious. She was a Vanderbilt. So all that Vanderbilt money, which was a lot of it was real estate, the Vanderbilt money was, it was one of the biggest fortunes in New York. So she was obviously a very eligible young lady. And Mrs. Vanderbilt took it in her into her head that she wanted to find a very aristocratic English husband for her daughter, Consuelo. This is in 1895 at the sort of tail end of this phenomenon. And so somehow word got out to the Duke of Marlborough, one of the young dukes who had inherited a very large house and almost no money. Word got out that Consuelo was eligible and he came over to the United States, spent a summer in New York City and in Newport and proposed to Consuelo toward the end. And she was so afraid of her mother and so browbeaten that she went ahead and married the guy. And it was a miserable marriage for both parties. So it's really, it's very sad. It's glamorous, but sad. And there's a real story about how she cried her heart out and went to the altar with red eyes because she'd been crying all morning. Well, truthfully, I take I take that with a, with a bit of skepticism. Consuelo did, as I said, write her own story and maybe her eyes were red or maybe she wanted to add some drama. She did have, I think I recall, a, a ghostwriter for that book. Oh, so yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know for sure, but she certainly built, she made the most of the drama. <laughs> yeah. Look, amongst your large backlist is one book that I just really love to mention that, and that is your revamping of Ben-Hur, because you did this, a revamp of Ben-Hur for the 21st century, and you were involved with that because you had a very special connection with the original book. It was your great-grandfather, Lou Wallace, who wrote the first Ben-Hur. And I must admit, before I became aware of your association with it, I really only thought about Charlton Heston in association with Ben-Hur. But there was an amazing backstory about how the original book, which became an utter bestseller, one of the best-selling books ever, really, in all time, how it happened. Because Lou was in his 50s and really a bit down on his cups when he got the idea of writing it, wasn't he? Tell us about that. He was. And it was after the Civil War, and he had come from a family in Indiana, and his war had not been a particularly successful one. And he had, however, a a real taste for adventure, and it had been, in a way, whetted by the Civil War. And then he was taking a train. You know, in, in America in those days, the distances were so vast, and everybody had to take these train trips, and he was on his way to an army reunion, and he met a man named Robert Ingersoll, who was a big speechifier in those days, a debating celebrity. And Ingersoll was a, an agnostic. He, one of the things he liked to argue about was that he was, he was skeptical about the divinity of Christ. And um, sitting next to him, on this train, Lou Wallace was driven to kind of re-examine his Christian faith, which in those days was more or less 
just a conventional uh, churchgoer. So Lou dipped himself into very, very intense research and storytelling. I think that is how he, as a, as a reader, processed things. And the result was Ben-Hur, because we tend to think of Ben-Hur, the movie certainly, as the chariot race or the shipwreck. But in point of fact, the plot involves a young Jewish prince and his struggle against the Romans who were at that point occupying Judea. And the people who made the movie went for the the greater drama, as of course you would. But I would argue that Lou had really gone for a more spiritual take on the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And growing up as a young woman, did you have any great sense of this legacy? I mean, is that one of the things that meant you became a writer yourself? You know, I think truthfully, it really it really was, Jenny. We had copies of the book in, I can't tell you how many languages. People who would find them at book sales would, would send them to us or give them to us. And we had also a huge bound set of annals of the Civil War that covered Lou's uh, war career. Very, very dull, but beautifully bound. So that was a really big presence. And also, that book made a very considerable sum of money. And sometimes my father used to joke that it, uh, Ben-Hur was sending us to college, which I don't know if that's actually true. But it meant a great deal to me to have that example to think of as, a, as an ancestor. Yeah. In the Civil War, he was one of the generals at Shiloh, which was an incredibly hard-fought battle, which the Union, and he was on the Union side, did finally win, but with huge loss of life. And he was, it almost sounds like, made a bit of a scapegoat by his commander at that time. It did certain, It did sound somewhat like that. And it's hard to know. There are no records of exactly where he was or who was involved. Certainly, he did not show up where he was expected at the time he was supposed to be there, but there could have been any number of reasons for that. And I think he was a man for whom things had gone right, more or less, until then, and that was quite a shock and hard to take. We're taking a short break. We'll be back with Carol Wallace in a flash. We've just launched a new podcast feature called Encore, a monthly bonus podcast of around 20 minutes where favourite authors who've already been on the show talk about their latest books. Encore will preview exclusively on Patreon for two weeks before being released as a free-to-air show. The first episode of Encore, featuring top-selling Kiwi historical novelist Deborah Chalinor talking about her book The Leonard Girls, is already live free to air. The second Encore episode, Jill Paul talking about The Collector's Daughter, her dual timeline story of aristocrat Lady Evelyn Herbert and the uncovering of Tutankhamun's tomb in the 1920s, goes to Patreon exclusive this week and free to air in two weeks' time. For early access to Patreon content like Encore and the other features, getting to know you five quickfire questions and the behind-the-scenes monthly newsletter which gives you advice about books that are coming up, all of that can be checked out on Binge Reading on Patreon at patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the joys of binge reading. 
We'd love to have your support and also to hear from you. What do you think of the new Encore feature? Now, the other famous one that I want to mention just before we move on, you also wrote a book about Vincent van Gogh. And so you've had an amazing spread in the topics that you've tackled. And this one was unusual because it really only took the last period of his life and examined what went on there. Tell us a little bit about how you got drawn into that story. I will uh, just point out one thing here, Jenny, which is that these are all stories that that are set in the 19th century in a way. Yes. So that's that, you know, I don't stray too far from that period, which I find deeply, deeply fascinating. The Vincent van Gogh thing came about because I had gotten a, a degree in art history from Columbia University in my late 30s and wrote my thesis about a doctor named Gachet who had been the physician to a number of artists. And one of them was Vincent van Gogh. And so part of my research for the thesis was going to this little town in France called Auvers, where Vincent had spent his last days. And it was strangely affecting in that For some reason, they have preserved Vincent's little house where he was living. And I was there at a time of year which was quite empty. And as I was going up the stairs to see the bedroom where he had apparently died, I was alone there except for a woman who came out of the room as I was going in. And she just looked at me and said, it's just too sad. And all it was was an empty room. And yet, somehow... The spirit of the death, the spirit of the people who had loved Vincent, he was apparently a very lovable man when he wasn't driving you crazy, it was all right there. And that that really prompted me to stick with that book, which was a hard one to write because it was so deeply unhappy. Yes. The whole, this is still controversial today, whether he committed suicide or whether he was murdered and exactly what his fragile emotional state related to. And I know you have said you think that part of it was a bipolar condition. Do you think if he was a current artist today, we would have seen the same outcomes and would he have got the same treatment? Well, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? I think from what I've understood, some of the medical treatments for, for example, schizophrenia or the more or bipolar disorder do tend to flatten people's sense of creativity. And if that were to have been the case, then perhaps we might not have seen some of those ravishing canvases we did see. But it's arguable, right? We can't, we can't tell. Certainly, he suffered through tremendous highs and lows. And there are books and his scholarly novels about what he might, what might exactly have been his malady. And they can't, he probably could have been treated by our standards today. But there's no way to to know how that would have affected his creative process. Yes, yes, it's interesting, actually. Just this morning on our news here, there's been new research, which one of the things showed that antidepressants, for example, over a two-year period really make no difference at all. The outcome at two years is the same as if you didn't have to take them. So wow, I know it's slightly different from bipolar, but yeah. Look, we are starting to run out of time. So let's turn to Carol as reader. 
It's called The Joys of Binge Reading because we like to recommend to our listeners books they might like to discover for themselves, mainly in the area of popular fiction. I'm sure you've done a lot of reading that isn't popular fiction, but I know that you do do some popular fiction because I've seen your blogs on people like um, Lee Child. So tell us about your own reading tastes and make a couple of recommendations for listeners. Well, I do read a lot of murder mysteries. And at the moment, I'm going back through the, I'm reading one of the Simon Surrailer books. And gosh, I can't even remember. You're going to have to look this up. Lee Child, of course, is a real favorite of mine. Let's see, looking over my shoulder here. Shoot, I'm not going to get this right, Jenny, because I didn't do my homework. Let me just keep throwing things out. The murder mystery series I, I am really, really fond of. And I like them to be not so, not too ghoulish but also very thought, I like very thoughtful ones. If you can hang on one second, I'm going to grab my Kindle. Nope, it's not even here. I am unprepared. I'm sorry. That's Um, all right. And I do also love reading mid-20th century English middle-brow fiction. You know what? I'll email you right afterward and you'll be able to, you won't have my voice doing it, but yeah. That's great. You did mention earlier that you are a secret admirer of Georgette Hayes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, not so secret. I have all of her books. And, you know, another one I love is Angela Thurkel. I don't know if she's still read at all, but she was very, very popular in the 30s and 40s. And I have all of her books in physical um, copies, which is quite unusual. They don't have to be all that all that interesting or all that contemporary. They just have to keep me pleasantly entertained is pretty much what I'm looking for. Fantastic. That sounds wonderful. Um. Looking back over your career as a fiction author, and we didn't really quite get into talking about what specifically got you started on fiction, but as a fiction author, are you happy with the way things turned out or is there anything you'd go back and change if you had the opportunity? That's a wonderful question. And I'm very happy to be able to say that I am really delighted. I had not written much fiction. I I did write, let's see, two... I wrote two novels of romantic suspense back in the 80s, and it just says a lot about the New York City publishing world that I could get them published in those days because they really aren't very good. I'm not a good plotter by any means. They had great atmosphere and the romances were delightful, but in terms of suspense, I'm sorry. I kind of fall flat <laughs> on that one. So that's that would never have worked for me. To be able to have written a book as serious as Leaving Van Gogh and for that to get published was quite startling. And I don't know that it would have happened now. The book publishing industry has contracted somewhat. And I think a serious and fairly downbeat discussion of Van Gogh's mental illness would be pretty hard to sell in the U.S. now. And I actually, I had to write our kind of people, I had to write the whole book before I could sell it to a publisher. And I might have actually had to rewrite it for the editor. I don't remember this part very clearly, so that, that may not be the case. But I was delighted to be able to sell our kind of people. And there is a possibility I'm working on a, not a, not a sequel, but a linked book that takes place 10 years later in the New York in the early 1880s. There might be some linked characters. There might not. There will be some new ones. It's entitled, She Calls Herself a Widow, which I quite like. And it's about a character who is a 
big deal in both in New York City and in Southern California named Arabella Huntington, who had a very, very colorful past. And she's an actual character. There might be some overlap with characters from Our Kind of People. I think Nick Wilcox, last time we saw Nick Wilcox in Our Kind of People, he was at loose ends and I have found something for him to do and collect a paycheck. So that could be kind of fun. He could be sort of a loose cannon, I think. And it will be set... A little further uptown, and by the 1880s, New York is even wealthier than it was in the 1870s, perhaps even more more showy. So the social dynamics that you read about in our kind of people have just continued and expanded in a way. So that's what I'm working on now. Certainly, I consider that our kind of people would be a great candidate for doing one of those TV uh, series like Netflix is doing, like the Bridgertons. There's so yeah. many stories there. And this sounds like it would be the perfect second series. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Carol, thank you so much. It's been wonderful having you with us today. We really have slightly gone over time, but thank you so much for being with us. Oh, Jenny, it was my pleasure. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading, Lisa McClendon's Bennett Sisters French Mystery Series features on the show next week with her 11th book, Chateau de Corbeau, Castle of Ravens, set in the vineyards of Bordeaux. That's on The Joys of Binge Reading next week. That's it for today. Happy reading and see you next time.